In February of 1733, a ship full of settlers led by General James Oglethorpe arrived at Yamacraw Bluff near a river along the southeast coast of the United States. Oglethorpe spent a brief period negotiating with the local Native American tribes and was quickly able to secure a tract of land along the river. Here, he founded a new settlement, which he named Savannah, after the river it bordered, and it was to become the first city of a new colony, Georgia, a colony that was founded largely with the intention of acting as a buffer against the Spanish to the south. And this new city would grow to be very successful. In 1751, it was made the colonial capital of Georgia, and being the southernmost seaport in the 13 colonies, it was an important trade location. And even in modern times, it still remains an important industrial center. Its charm, cobblestone streets, and historic buildings attract millions of visitors every year. But while the city has achieved a great deal of success, it has also faced its fair share of growing pains. And there are some extremely dark periods in the city's nearly 300-year history. In the late 1700s, most of the population of Savannah lived in a very confined area, a stretch of about half a mile squeezed between Oglethorpe Avenue and the Savannah River. Most of the city's roughly 6,000 inhabitants lived in a handful of tightly packed wards and small houses made mostly of wood and built in extremely close proximity to one another. Now, you may be thinking that this sounds like a little bit of a fire hazard. Well, that's because it was. And the people of Savannah were aware of that. In fact, there were numerous rules in place with the intent of minimizing the risk of fire. They had a volunteer fire service. Wells were built in several of the city's squares. Wooden chimneys were forbidden. And there were ordinances against various high-risk activities, like building open fires in unauthorized locations. For many years, through a combination of these rules and a little bit of luck, the people of Savannah managed to get by without any major fires. But they were still playing a dangerous game, and eventually their luck would run out. In fact, the city of Savannah would face devastating fires on a number of occasions. Early in the evening of Saturday, November 26th, 1796, a small fire broke out in the back of a bakery and quickly began crossing property lines, dancing its way to neighboring buildings. The blaze spread throughout the night, ravaging the city until 1 a.m., when it finally began to abate. But by then, the damage had already been done. Half a dozen people were dead, a reported 229 homes were destroyed, and some 400 families were left homeless. Two-thirds of the city was demolished by the blaze in the course of a night. But Savannah would persevere. An influx of financial aid came in from neighboring cities, and destroyed homes and businesses quickly popped back up, only to suffer an even more devastating blaze less than 25 years later. Early in the morning, around 1 or 2 a.m. on January 11, 1820, another fire broke out. It's unclear what exactly started the fire, but many believe that it was arson. 
It was common for vagrants and thieves of the time to deliberately start a fire as a diversion, allowing them to use the ensuing panic and commotion as cover while they looted local businesses unnoticed. Whatever the cause, this particular fire began in a stable, behind Miss Platt's boarding house. It was a windy night in the midst of a very dry winter, a recipe for disaster that allowed the fire to spread at a frightening rate. It devoured the stable, and soon after, the wind maneuvered the flames to several nearby buildings, and before long, the whole block was ablaze. Families began to evacuate, grabbing whatever belongings they could before their doomed wooden homes were consumed by the flames. The fire department did what they could to contain the blaze, but the small team and their hand-pooled fire engines were fighting a losing battle from the beginning. The fire continued to spread uncontrollably. It made its way through alleys and across streets, consuming everything in its path. It eventually reached Market Square, where it found its way to two barrels of gunpowder, which it ignited. The somber and defeated firefighters dropped to the ground as the massive explosion catapulted fiery debris in every direction, only serving to expand the blaze's reach. Panicked citizens of Savannah milled about in every direction, unable to do anything but watch in agonized bewilderment as their homes and their businesses and their city burned. The streets and squares were piled high with belongings that had been rescued from disintegrating wooden homes, while thieves and looters perused the haphazard piles at their leisure. Savannah, Georgia was, once again, a fiery, hellish landscape. This fire, just like the one 25 years before, caused unbelievable devastation. It wasn't until around 2 p.m. the next day that the roaring flames finally began to fizzle out, and the people of Savannah were able to assess the true extent of the damage. When it was all said and done, 463 structures were destroyed. The business part of town was essentially erased. The public market, the United States Bank, the local newspaper offices, all gone. Only two stores in the entire city survived. But it wasn't just the businesses that were destroyed. Following the inferno, two-thirds of the residents of Savannah were left homeless many of whom were unable to save anything except for the clothes on their backs. But for the people of Savannah, the hardships were not over yet. In fact, this was only the beginning, and the worse was yet to come. Following the Great Fire of 1820, the city of Savannah was faced with a new, even more deadly adversary, Yellow Fever. The altered landscape of the demolished city became a breeding ground for mosquitoes. The dark, damp shells of collapsed buildings quickly filled with water, creating warm pools that were perfect incubators for mosquito larvae. By summer, countless people throughout the city were suffering from a terrible fever, accompanied by convulsions and black vomit. Citizens began to die by the hundreds. Those with the means to evacuated the city, opting to live elsewhere with friends or family until the danger had passed. But many had nowhere to go, and instead were forced to wait it out. Terrified families huddled together in their homes, often with their dying relatives quarantined above on the top floor. Outside, the streets were lined with the bodies of the deceased, while death carts trundled through town, collecting the bodies to be buried. 
Savannah was a grim, corpse-ridden ghost town. By early October, only about 2,500 people remained in Savannah, while only four months before, there had been about 7,500 residents. By December, the epidemic finally began to fizzle out. But not before an estimated 895 people had died as a result of the yellow fever epidemic. In fact, people died at such a rapid pace that the burial process became haphazard at best. In its late stages, yellow fever plunges its victims into an immobile, coma-like condition. Doctors of the time were not completely clear on how exactly to define death, and it was not uncommon for the living to be confused with the dead, ultimately resulting in people being buried alive. Given the rate that the illness was spreading, it was very common for family members to die in quick succession, and sometimes, when placing a new body inside the family tomb, scratch marks would be found on the inside of the door, evidence of someone inside trying to escape, leaving their family with the gut-wrenching realization that they had buried a loved one alive. Looking back, it's easy enough to see how this tragedy happened. To the people of the time, it simply looked as if the ill were, in fact, dead. And it's only when viewing the situation through modern eyes that we are able to understand what exactly happened, that the dead were not dead. Now, in this case, the burial and revival of the dead was a tragic mistake. A mistake that no one had any idea had happened until it was too late. But throughout history, there are abundant examples of cases where people come to believe that the dead are not actually dead. And oftentimes, this leads to some very startling results. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, I am PJ, and you are listening to episode 21 of Simply Strange. I don't think I have anything else to say right now, so... Let's just get into it. Today, I am going to tell you the story of Mercy Brown. of the dead is a fear that has influenced humanity for almost the entirety of written history. As early as 4000 BC, Mesopotamians told stories of a terrible creature known as an Edimu, which literally translated to one who is snatched away. The Edimu were believed to be the angry remnants of unfortunate people who were not buried properly, forcing their spirits to roam the land 
feeding off of the life forces of the living. One of the most well-known examples of the living dead are vampires, a staple in both modern culture and folklore. While the concept of undead, blood-sucking creatures has been present in nearly every culture throughout history, the myth of the vampire originated sometime around the late 17th century in Eastern Europe. In these tales, vampires were described as malevolent spirits that inhabited the bodies of the deceased. During the day, they would hide, tucked away in the safety of the grave. But by night, they would rise and feed on the blood of sleeping men and women. The blood would give them the strength necessary to continue on, but would slowly drain the life of their victims. Over time, however, stories of the vampire evolved, and new traditions began to appear. In some versions of the story, the vampire gained the ability to steal the life forces of its victims without even leaving the grave, and instead, its parasitic soul would exit its body, usually from the neck, and drift lazily along, guided by the night breeze, until it reached its victim. It would steal their essence, leaving the victim pale and weak. Then the soul would return to its body, which would receive the energy and become reinvigorated. Oddly enough, this version of the vampire eventually made its way to North America, where it became a relatively popular belief in parts of Rhode Island. The living dead masquerade under different names with respect to the culture they originate from. Edimu, Draugr, Ghoul, Mummy, Zombie, Vampire. But no matter what you call them, there are some things that are consistent throughout. The living dead are bad news, and are traditionally a source of great dread. Fueled by our fear of death, and lack of understanding as to what exactly happens after, the living dead are embodiments of our superstition. And superstition, as we all know, can sometimes lead to terrible things. While Savannah, Georgia was busy dealing with its yellow fever outbreak, hundreds of miles to the north, New England was dealing with its own deadly enemy, tuberculosis, a disease that people of the time knew little about. In fact, many of the people of rural New England didn't even refer to it as tuberculosis as we do now. To them, it was known as consumption, due to the fact that one of the most dramatic symptoms was weight loss which gave the impression that the life of the victim was slowly being sucked away from them. It was a terrible disease. Responsible for almost a quarter of all deaths, it was the leading cause of mortality in the Northeast United States through the 1800s. Its victims would spend months or even years suffering from a tremendous fever and a bloody cough while their body slowly wasted away. George and Mary Brown lived in a tiny Rhode Island town called Exeter with their three children. Life in Exeter was a challenge. It was mostly a farming town, which would have been all well and fine 
if it weren't for one little issue. The soil there was infertile and rocky, and not very suitable for agriculture. So between the constant threat of consumption, the casualties suffered in the Civil War, and the masses of residents leaving for promises of richer land to the west, the population of the town was dwindling. From 1820 to 1892, the population of Exeter fell from 2,500 people to just 961. Despite all this, though, the Brown family was sticking it out. George was a well-respected farmer, and he and his wife and children lived on a modest homestead of about 30 acres on the edge of town, relatively unfazed by the hardships of the time. That is, until December of 1883. George's wife, Mary Brown, was struck by consumption, and she stood little chance against the deadly illness. The disease ambushed her suddenly and violently, and before long, the unfortunate woman was fighting a desperate battle with the horrible illness. Every night, she spent without sleep as she trembled and sweat, coughing up blood and quickly wasting away until all that was left was the emaciated shell of the woman who was once Mary Brown. Her breathing, barely able to interrupt the constant cough, was shallow and laborious, her eyes were sunken, and her gaze seemed far away. Then, just as quickly as it all began, it ended, leaving George Brown with the agonizing task of arranging his own wife's burial. But this was not to be the end of his trouble. In fact, it was far from it. Just seven months later, his eldest daughter, 21-year-old Mary Olive, also succumbed to consumption. And a few years after that, in 1890, his son Edwin also fell ill with the terrible disease. He, like his mother and sister before him, began to lose his color and his appetite. He was greatly fatigued, and he suffered a terrible cough. However, he managed to keep death at bay for much longer than his mother and sister had. Eventually, his father sent him off to Colorado, in hopes that the dry air and a change of scenery may help him to fight off the disease. A little over a year passed, and Edwin remained in Colorado, making a valiant but futile effort to shake off his terrible affliction, while back in Exeter, his father remained with his sole remaining healthy child, 18-year-old Mercy. But then, in January of 1882, Mercy also fell ill and began suffering from symptoms much like those of her mother and siblings before her. George, having seen this before, feared the worst for his daughter, and he rushed her to the local doctor, Dr. Harold Metcalf. But by then, it was too late. Mercy's illness was bad, something that the doctor referred to as the galloping kind. It was progressing quickly. Dr. Metcalf informed George that the illness had already gone too far, and that any further medical aid would be useless. Just weeks after falling ill, Mercy, too, died.
Around the same time as Mercy's death, it was decided that Edwin, George's only remaining living child, was not making any improvements as a result of his tenure in Colorado, so George arranged for him to come home. Now, at this point, as you might expect, George was a distraught, broken man. He had lost nearly everything, his wife and two of his three children, and Edwin, upon his return, was in worse condition than George had anticipated. He too was on the brink of death. The community rallied around him, offering support for George and prayers for his ailing son. And some had something else to offer as well. Advice. A number of George's neighbors, likely fearing for their own health, were not content with prayers alone, and suggested a more aggressive approach. They believed that Edwin's illness, the terrible disease that was slowly eating away at his body and reducing him to nothing, consumption as they called it, was more than just a disease. It was proposed to George that an unseen evil was preying on his family, that perhaps one of the three women who had previously died were not truly dead at all, that instead one of them was somehow possessed, secretly feasting on the flesh and blood of George's family and eating away at Edwin. George's neighbors proposed that they exhume the bodies of his deceased wife and daughters and check their hearts for fresh blood and any other signs of supernatural influence. Now, it's worth noting that they never actually used the word vampire, but all of these beliefs and symptoms were borrowed from Eastern European vampire lore, and the blood in the heart was a telltale sign. While George wasn't necessarily convinced of the validity of this theory, he was desperate. And after several weeks of heated debate, George gave his permission for a group to exhume and examine his family. So on a chilly Wednesday afternoon in March of 1892, a party of men set out for Shrub Hill Cemetery, where the three departed members of the Brown family were located. George, understandably, made the decision not to attend the morbid ceremony, and in his stead, Dr. Metcalf looked on, accompanied by a correspondent from the local newspaper, while four other men solemnly began to remove the bodies of the Brown family from their graves. It was a calm, quiet morning in the cemetery. The air felt unusually heavy, and the dense forest encapsulating the burial ground loomed ominously over the men as their shovels dug into the earth, slowly inching closer to the coffin belonging to Mary Brown. Given that Mrs. Brown was the first one to pass, the men believed it most likely that she was the one responsible for the subsequent cases of consumption, so she was the first one to be removed. The men unearthed the coffin of Mary Brown, laboriously pulling it out of the hole, and they opened it. Upon doing so, it became grotesquely clear that Mary Brown was not the culprit. By this time, she had been dead for nine years, and little remained of her except for bones and the occasional mummified remnant of a muscle or bit of flesh still stubbornly clinging to her skeleton. Disappointed, the men returned the body back to its grave and moved on to the next one, the body of Mary Olive Brown, George's oldest daughter. But upon removing her body, 
the results were every bit as disappointing as those of her mother. Mary Olive, too, had undergone decomposition, just as would be expected, and all that remained of her now was a skeleton and a thick growth of hair. Again, the dejected men returned Mary Olive's body back to its resting place, and moved on to the final body, the recently deceased corpse of Mercy Brown. Now, unlike her mother and sister, Mercy had yet to actually be buried. During Rhode Island's cold winter months, it was very common for the ground to freeze solid, which makes digging a grave a difficult task. So in many cases, the solution to this was simply to wait. Oftentimes, a family would store the body of a deceased loved one in a cellar for the winter, or an attic, somewhere cold enough to preserve the body until spring came and the earth thawed, allowing the deceased to be given a proper burial. In the case of Mercy Brown, she was stored in a little stone building at the cemetery, referred to simply as the Keep. She was in there for about two months, until she was removed by the four desperate monster-hunting men. The men slid the lid off her coffin and peered down at the body below, and to their amazement, saw a body that was extremely well-preserved. There was little to no decay, and some versions of the story even state that her body was not in the original position that it had been buried in, or that her fingernails and hair had grown substantially. Whatever the circumstances, the men were convinced. Mercy Brown was under the influence of a supernatural being, feeding off of her own brother while she lay tucked away in her coffin. Next, the men, who were now beyond being reasoned with, began to perform a vicious and prompt-to autopsy. They plunged a knife into Mercy Brown's body and cut out her heart and liver for the doctor to examine. And... To their amazement, the doctor did find one other piece of evidence that further reinforced their belief that Mercy's body had somehow been overtaken by a dark power. He found dried, clotted blood in her heart. Dr. Metcalf, however, was not so convinced. He attempted to explain to the men that the lack of decomposition was merely a result of her body having been stored in freezer-like conditions for the last two months and that her body, in fact, was in exactly the condition that he would expect it to be in, given the circumstances. But his explanation fell upon deaf ears. The men had made up their mind. Mercy Brown was responsible for her brother's affliction. And all that was left to do now was administer the remedy. There is an old superstition that accompanies vampire folklore, that as long as the heart contains blood, the suffering of those being fed upon by the vampire will continue and worsen. And in order to heal the victim from their consumption, the heart must be burned. So the men did exactly that. They started a fire on a small rock near the keep, where they reduced Mercy Brown's heart and liver to ashes. Then they collected the ashes, mixed them with a tonic, and brought them to Edwin who, as dictated by the requirements laid out in superstition, was forced to drink the tonic. This, as the stories go, should have cured Edwin for good. And following his consumption of the ashes, the men were finally satisfied. 
Frustratingly enough, Mercy and Edwin Brown were actually living in a time where the medical knowledge to diagnose tuberculosis did exist. The disease was officially given the name tuberculosis in 1839, and in March of 1882, 10 years prior to Mercy and Edwin's deaths, bacteriologist Robert Koch discovered the organism responsible for the alleged consumption, a tiny bacteria in the lungs called tubercle bacillus. Following this discovery, Koch was confident that a cure would be found, and that the fear caused by the dreadful disease would soon abate. His optimism, however, was unfounded. It took many more years to get a handle on the disease, and in more remote places like Exeter, Rhode Island, there was little knowledge at all to the science behind consumption, and it continued to incite hysteria and attempts at bizarre folk remedies. In the case of Edwin Brown, despite all the efforts made to save him, the remedies were wholly ineffective, and he still died about two months later. His sister, Mercy Brown, on the other hand, went down in history as one of the most famous examples of suspected vampirism. That is a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks for stopping by, and I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, maybe tell a friend about the show. I bet they'll like it, too. I'm always welcoming new listeners, and word of mouth is a fantastic way to help the show grow. So if you can share Simply Strange with someone, it would be hugely appreciated. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all kinds of weird and wild updates with very sporadic consistency. Finally, I would like to thank my wonderful girlfriend Harriet for the support on Patreon. Thank you. It's much appreciated. If anyone else would like to join her, you can do so over at patreon.com slash simply strange. I'll put that link in the description. There's stickers and stuff over there, so that's fun. And a huge thank you to everyone who supports the show over there on Patreon as well. I want to keep improving the show, and your support really does help me to get there. So thank you. Simply Strange will be back in two weeks with another spooky story for you. The story that I intended for this episode to be about didn't actually even make it in here, so maybe there will be more vampires coming up. But probably not. I guess you'll just have to tune in to find out. And until then... Here is another really interesting podcast for you to check out, Murder Mile. If you're looking for something different, Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files, it's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. 
So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018. So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile.